following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Looking at a fairly brief passage tonight, uh, but a passage which focuses on uh, our sinfulness and a passage that focuses on the evidence and the works of, of our flesh and the desires of our flesh as we see it manifested in our lives. And so, as we come to a text that points to sin and, and to, to selfishness and to the works of the flesh, we need to sing, Jesus paid it all, because that is the ground we stand on as we come to the text. What a joy to sing those words together, knowing before we come to this, the answer we have in Christ our Savior. Let's uh, read tonight. Um, I want to I read um, from chapter 5. Before I read the text, though, let me just uh, sort of give a big picture, just you know, background, uh, a little bit of the context of where we are. You may remember that Dr. Light mentioned last week that we're slowing down a bit to look at these verses at the end of Galatians chapter 5. The verses at the end of, of Galatians chapter 5, sort of, they, they bring the battle of the Christian life into sharp focus. They sort of they give us this battle in, in high definition, if you will. And so we're taking some very small chunks, and I just want to remind us of the context of where we are as we enter this little chunk of, of God's Word here tonight. Remember that Paul, um, starting all the way back in chapter 4 of Galatians, has been describing and building up two systems or two ways of life. On the one hand, there's the system or the way of life that's defined by the law. And the system or way of life that's defined by the way of law rests on our efforts. It rests on our efforts to accomplish and to earn the, the uh, good pleasure and the acceptance of God. But this system, of course, comes with the requirement to keep the whole law and to keep it perfectly. And so the system or way of life that rests on the law is a system that comes with a crushing burden, the crushing burden of asking yourself at any minute, have I kept the whole law? Have I kept the whole law? And of course, the crushing burden also of recognizing, no, I have not kept the whole law. And so that is way of life Number one, that Paul said this was the way of life that figuratively was characterized by Hagar. It is this way of life that can be defined as nothing else than slavery under the demands of the law. But of course, on the other hand, way of life number two that Paul has been describing is is the way of life that is built on the foundation of faith. Faith in our God. Faith that is built upon Christ's death and his resurrection on our behalf. This way of life is based on God's promise to us. It's not based on what we do, but what He has done and the promise that He has made to us through what He has done in Christ Jesus. This life, of course, will be characterized by certain works. It's characterized, as Paul said earlier, by faith working through love. But it's not a matter of doing faith or being better or loving fully or perfectly. It's not a matter of what we do. It's a matter of turning our gaze upon Christ. It's a matter of turning our gaze upon our Savior 
and living in the freedom of his death and resurrection, which have gained for us resurrection, life, and hope. That is the second way of life that Paul urges us to cling to. But of course, as we looked at last week with Dr. Light um, preaching through verses 16 through 18, we noted that when the Spirit of God dwells in us, we don't immediately and perfectly attain the righteousness that we hope for in Christ. We don't experience an, an immediate, complete victory over the desires of the flesh, but there's a continued battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit that are, are at conflict. And, and each one of us in our daily walk senses this conflict. We know this conflict. And I think when we read Paul's words about this battle of these two desires in us, it's one we readily nod our heads to and assent to. It's something we know from personal experience day after day. So how do we navigate this battle? We've got these two systems, these two ways of life, but even as we run to Christ, we still feel the battle between these two ways of life in us. Paul told us last week that we should approach this battle by walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. I think that's so helpful for us to to see that Paul's response to this battle isn't to start saying to us, well, okay, just love better, just do this better, just follow these commands better. He doesn't do that. That's following the way of the law. He says, turn to your Savior, run to the Spirit, walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit of God in Christ Jesus. And as you're led by the Spirit, it is the Spirit who frees you from the burden of the law and who also will then free you from the desires of the flesh that are battling in you. So that's where we've come from. That's, that's the context of these two systems or ways of life that, we've, that Paul has talked about in the battle that continues to rage in our lives. But of course, While our help in the midst of the battle comes from turning to the Spirit of God, not from getting down and doing certain deeds better, what Paul's going to turn to now is to say, well, this battle will still manifest itself in how we act. There is a real-life implications. There's a real-life application, real-life evidence um, of this battle and of these desires and how they play out in our life. So that's what we're going to look at tonight, particularly focusing on verses 19 through 21, and particularly looking at the evidences of the desires of the flesh and the sin that rages in us. But I want to read verses 16 through 26 for the context here. So if you would, let's read Galatians 5, 16 through 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the uh, the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited provoking one another or envying one another. 
Let's just pray briefly as we come to God's word. God, this is your word. This is your truth. Speak to us by your spirit. Continue to speak from the same spirit who wrote these words so many years ago to make us more like our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen. In many ways, if we are going to focus in on verses 19 through 21 tonight, the point of these verses is very straightforward. It's a very clear and simple point. God is giving us in these verses a list, examples of the works of the flesh that are evident in the person who is not being led by the Spirit of God. And the person who finds themselves filled with these works rather than being led by the Spirit of God will not inherit God's kingdom. Here's a list of the works of the desires of the flesh, the sins that are so evident, Paul says, that lead to us not inheriting the kingdom of God. I think it's important for us to know how we ought to read these lists. And obviously, um, we're focusing on the list of sins and the works of the flesh tonight. Well, Dr. Light will be focusing more on the, uh, the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit two weeks from now. Uh, but how should we think about these lists? As we come to the text tonight, I think it's important for us to approach these lists correctly. It's very easy for us to approach these as sort of the... the uh, qualifications of here's what you have to do, and if you do this list, you'll be okay, and if you, if you do this list, you're not going to be okay. Well, I think we need to think about the list more as evidences than we do as requirements of what we have to do to get one place or another. Maybe put it this way, I think we need to think of the, the, these, these lists, these, these verses, more like the way we thought of litmus paper in middle school science. I remember my middle school science class when I first got introduced to litmus paper. You remember the little piece of paper and, and you dip it in and, and it would either turn red or blue to indicate whether it was with an acid or a base. And I loved this stuff. I wanted to go around and stick it in everything and see if it would turn red or blue. And we boiled cabbage on the stove and stick it in there. And you know, we'd put it in my orange juice and put it in my milk and you know, put it on our tongues. We'd like to go around with it on our tongues. And you know, we got this litmus paper. And the litmus paper, the litmus paper didn't make something an acid. It didn't make something a base. The litmus paper just said, here's what's going on here. It's a test to tell you what's going on in the substance you're, test- you're testing. And I think that's the way Paul wants us to read these lists here. When we come to these lists, it's not do this and you'll be saved. (laughs) Don't do this or you're going to hell. It's here are the evidences of what's going on in a person's life. Here, here, Here is the litmus paper. One side of the litmus paper indicates the work of the Spirit. The other side of the litmus paper indicates the works of the flesh. One side of the litmus paper yields the good fruit or lists the good fruit of the Spirit. The other side of the litmus paper lists the works of the flesh. We can maybe put it this way. These verses are not directions for you to obey if you want to get into the kingdom of God. In other words, do this and and you'll be fine. They're rather a guide to examining, is the Spirit of God at work in your life? Is the Spirit of God making you more like Him? So what what does the litmus paper look like? What does the litmus paper look like for those who are following, who are immersed in the desires of the flesh? Well, Paul describes these in detail in verses 19 through 21. We'll focus in on these. If if we look at this list in 19 through 21, we go through it, and there's a lot of things in this list. But it's clearly an incomplete list. If you notice at the very end of verse 21, Paul says, And such things like these. 
So we shouldn't, we shouldn't look at this as sort of a, a limited list of as long as we avoid these, uh, you know, this list of things, we're okay. This is an incomplete list. But at the same time, it is a thorough list. It's a, it's a list that's thorough enough to give us a picture, to paint the picture that Paul wants us to see of what it looks like to live a life driven by the desires of the flesh. Let's look briefly at, at this list of particular works of the flesh. Paul, Paul begins with three words, three words that all describe a range of sexual sins. Uh, Paul says that the works of the flesh are evident through sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. This is a list that clearly describes a much uh, broader range of sexual sins than just uh, adultery or, or sex outside of marriage. Uh, John Stott, one commentator on, on talking about these three words, says this. He said, these three words, sexuality, uh, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality, are sufficient to show that all sexual offenses, whether public or private, whether between married or unmarried, whether natural or unnatural, are all to be classified as works of the flesh. A book could be filled, I'm sure, with the examples, all of the examples of of sexual sins committed by a culture such as ours sold out to sexuality. But trying to, you know, be okay as long, and I hear this all the time, well, well, we're okay because we stopped short of actually committing sex outside of marriage. I think what Paul's doing is giving us a bigger picture of immorality, sensuality, uncleanness, um, impurity here. I think in doing so, Paul brings us right back to the standard for what sexuality was made for. God has given one appropriate expression of sexuality between a husband and wife in marriage. And any sexual temptation out of that one expression, whether it be as an individual, as a couple, in thought, word, or deed, is a part of the works of the flesh and not what God intended for mankind in in sexuality. So we first have these three words giving us a picture of of sexual sin. Next, Paul goes on to name idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry and sorcery. Both idolatry and sorcery um, are expressions of sinful worship. Idolatry, of course, would be an attempt to worship or find our identity in something other than God. It's the attempt to find an inappropriate substitute for God, to take something other than God and make Him the object of our worship or our identity. That would be idolatry. Sorcery, on the other hand, uh, was an attempt to find spiritual strength and spiritual help from some source other than God. So both sorcery and idolatry are attempts to find what God offers from sources other than God himself. And of course, in uh, the pagan culture that Paul was writing to uh, in Galatia, both idolatry and sorcery would have been uh, evident But if you take the principles of finding an inadequate substitute from God or finding spiritual help from someone other than God, I think it's quite easy to say that we can find idolatry and, at least in this sense, sorcery uh, quite rampant in in our culture as well. Certainly many trying to find spiritual strength or help from someone other than God. So we have sexual sins. We have sins of worship and idolatry and sorcery. The third group of sins that we find here is an extensive list, an extensive list of sins which talk about how we interact as a community. And it shouldn't surprise us that one of the key evidences of whether the Spirit of God is at work in us is how we interact with the body of God's people, how we interact in community. And so the third group of sins that you see here, enmity, strife, 
jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissension, division, envy. These are all sins that impact our ability to live in community. They are all sins that turn us in against one another, driven by our own selfishness, rather than serving one another in love. And if you, if you step back and think, how is it that Scripture defines the community of God's people? And throughout Ephesians and in other places, we see such a beautiful picture of God's people, the body of Christ, are to be people who dwell together in unity, who are serving one another in love, who are building one another up, who are encouraging one another towards maturity and godliness. And you have this picture of this, this community of God's people building one another up and serving one another up and, and, and pushing one another to, to uh, uh, maturity in Christ. But of course, what does Paul say there is driving that community? Where does that unity come from? It's the unity that comes from the Spirit. The unity and the Spirit and the bond of peace. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if we're not being led by the Spirit, the Spirit which leads to good community, if we're not being led by the Spirit, it shouldn't surprise us to see the marks of bad community, that the marks of tearing at one another, self-focus, and and the things that, that tear a community apart would be clear evidence that the Spirit of God is not at work. And these, these attributes are also clear evidence that we are following the desires of the flesh. One of the most immediate and obvious examples or evidences that we're following the desires of our flesh will be how we interact with other people. And it will be most immediately evident when we're actually brought into the context of someone else. You know how it is. If you're alone all day, you can kind of stew in yourself and and nothing really bad happens. And as soon as you insert another person into your stewing, it all sort of spills out and becomes immediately obvious. The desires of our flesh and our selfishness are highlighted and magnified in community. And they come out in these uh, these things, quarrels, divisions, and envy. You know, it's interesting. um, If you remember in James, James chapter 4, and James talks about quarrels, and he talks about uh, people warring against themselves and, and anger. And, and he, he says, what is it that causes these quarrels and divisions among us? And he says, is it not that you want something and you don't have it? It's the desires of your flesh that motivate these community-tearing attributes. We, talk, you know, we see in this list anger, hatred, jealousy, division. These occur when, when we want something and either someone's in our way or someone's not giving us what we want or maybe someone else has what we want and we don't have it. And it's all rooted in these desires of the flesh. What do we want that we either don't have or someone else is getting in the way of? And, and that's at the root of tearing apart of our community. So these community-destroying attributes of people working for what they want are clear evidences of the desires of the flesh the desires of the flesh working at the expense of those around them. So the works of the flesh, they're evident in a variety of forms of sexual temptation. They're evident in false worship and false forms of of seeking spiritual help apart from God. They're evident when community tears at each other, driven by selfish desires, desires of the flesh. And lastly, we have uh, listed drunkenness and orgies. Drunkenness and orgies, I think, can be uh, both words that describe the excessive pursuit of pleasure, the excessive pursuit of pleasure, the addiction to things and substances that will entertain us and distract us and pull us uh, along. And of course, any of us who have pursued pleasure know that 
Things that bring pleasure do so incompletely and only temporarily. Drunkenness uh, and, and other pursuits of pleasure, they offer a temporary and incomplete solution to our desire for pleasure, distraction, um, and the solution to our longings in life. You know, Paul, Paul, thinking again in Ephesians, made it clear that drunkenness was a poor substitute for the Spirit. We are not to be people who seek to be drunk. We are people who are to be filled with the Spirit. So again, we get this opposition. Drunkenness in the pursuit of pleasure is in opposition to being filled with the Spirit and what the Spirit brings. So you know, it, it's interesting. As you read through this list, um, we could categorize them in this way or others, but as you read through this list, I think you get, a, get the feeling, both from Paul's list itself, but also from the tone of Paul's commentary, that he doesn't expect anyone to be surprised by this list. You know, Paul isn't writing here, he doesn't write, and he's not expecting any of his readers to come to this list and think, oh my goodness, you know, I never realized it was a bad thing to, you know, get drunk and go to orgies. Uh, he says these things are evident, they're, they're clear, you've been warned about them before. And I think, I think the, the tone of Paul's uh, writing here is that we all know at root that these are things that are not evidence of the Spirit of God at work in us. We know that these are characteristics of the works of the flesh and of our desires at work. However, if the list itself maybe isn't a surprise, if, if, if Paul's readers were not surprised that these things were things that Paul would speak against, Paul does seem to feel the need to emphasize again his conclusion. This list is a warning, and Paul pauses to stress twice the seriousness of the warning that the Galatians need to heed as they come to this list of the works of the flesh. Paul says, I warn you as I have warned you before. If we dip our litmus paper into our hearts and our lives and what we see spilling forth are these works of the flesh. And Paul says this is bright red evidence that we are not heirs of the kingdom of God. This, this list indicates something. It points to something. If this is overflowing from our lives, then we should not count ourselves amongst those who will inherit God's kingdom. This is a warning that we need to take very seriously. We need to take the warning seriously not only because its consequences are eternal, but we need to take this warning seriously also because of the breadth of the works that are included in these works of the flesh. What do I mean by the breadth of the works that are included here? Well, I think if you're like me, um, it's easy to approach a list of the works of the flesh like this and start to, start to rank them. We start to rank them and say sort of like, okay, we'll, we'll make a little ranking here and we'll rank number one and this one's really bad. And then we'll sort of rank them down to ten and, and this one's included here, but it's not really, it's not really all of that bad. And, and we start to categorize things here. I mean, I think, you know, we look at the list and we think, ah, yes, you know, orgies, you know, if we're participating in orgies, then we know, you know, that's, that's really bad. But, you know, envy, uh, we all envy, you know, envy's, envy's not really that bad, right? I mean, is, is a little envy or jealousy going to disqualify us from the, you know, inheriting the kingdom of God? And you know, if you're like me, I start to run through this dialogue and I start thinking, well, you know, I, I can think of some ways that I've been envious of, of a few people recently. 
I can think of, you know, uh, uh, envy coming through my mind and my heart fairly frequently. And, and I start to think, well, well gee, I, I know for a fact that I'm going to be envious of the, the first person I see with the new MacBook Air that comes out in April. And, and I know envy's at work in my mind. And you know, we start to spell this out. But then we start to think, okay, well, well surely that envy doesn't disqualify me uh, from, from being an, you know, uh, an heir of the, of the kingdom of God. And, and, and I think, well... You know, I'm up here confessing to you that, that I have envied other people and um, no one, I think, is, is ready to depose me from the ministry for confessing to, to envying. And I think it's probably because we all struggle at some level with, with envy and jealousy. And so, so we start to think, okay, well, some of these sins are worse than others, right? Like some of these sins do really disinherit us from the kingdom of God. And, and other, others of these, they're only bad if they're paired with the really bad ones, right? Um, and that's the kind of thought process that can start to to weigh into our minds. But, but this list, the list itself doesn't give us that out. When we see anger at our brothers and dissension and division in our relationships or, or envy and jealousy over what we don't have, sexual temptation and, and a lack of impurity, when we see this dwelling in our hearts, what Paul is saying is we're seeing the desires of our flesh. We're seeing the desires of our flesh and we're seeing the desires of our flesh at work. Well, okay, so we struggle with envy and jealousy. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us? When we see that at work in our hearts, where does that leave us? How are we supposed to read these verses when we see these things at work in our lives? Does this mean that, does the inheritance calculator, you know, have just been you know, running around the internet using mortgage calculator payments, you know, if we were sort of put out the inheritance calculator, does the inheritance calculator say, well, you've struggled with envy and jealousy and uh, there was some anger and uh, do, do we start to, to do that? And does it say, okay, no, you, you do not have an inheritance with the kingdom of God. Where, where does this leave us here as we look at the list of the works of the desires of the flesh? Well, first of all, I want to say two things. First, Paul calls each of us to examine our lives. Paul calls us to examine our lives. He calls us to, to examine our lives. And if our life is marked by the casual acceptance or the easy excusing of these characteristics, then look to Paul's warning. I warn you that these, those who do these things, those whose lives are filled with these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. The key point again, the key point again of these verses is a life filled by the works of the flesh is evidence that we will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't presume on the grace of God. Don't assume that our presence at church or our presence in a Christian family or Christian school or Christian community in and of itself means that that we will inherit the kingdom of God. Perhaps these verses are a call to you and to me to repent and to flee to Christ. If we see the desires of the flesh at work in us, if we see the desires of our flesh overflowing from our life, run to Christ. But, of course, we also need to balance this. We also need to balance this by saying that all of you and me will see some of this in our lives. And we know we will, and Paul says that we will. Because just a couple of verses earlier, Paul said that even those who have run to Christ are still seeing a battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the Spirit. And so at some level, Paul has just told us that all of us will see some of this at work in our lives. That's part of the battle between the spirit and the flesh. That's still the ongoing battle of those who walk with Christ in this life. It shouldn't surprise us. 
We know that we will look at this list. We know that we'll realize that it is describing us at some level because Paul's just told us to expect that. And Tim Keller, um, as he was commenting on these verses, he, he ended by saying this. He said, this list of the works of the flesh should shake us out of complacency if we are lazily allowing sin to continue in our lives. But this list should not shake our assurance in our Savior though the battle is still raging and not yet won. Shake us out of complacency, yet not shake our assurance if our gaze is fixed on our Savior. Well, okay, that's helpful. But I think perhaps if your mind turns like mine, um, I start to say, okay, well, how do I know where I stand? How do I know if I'm complacent and accepting sin in my life or whether I'm, I'm a faithful fighter fighting against the desires of the flesh? Am I complacent or battle-worn? Am I clinging to Christ while the desires of the flesh still win skirmishes? Or, or am I unfit to inherit the kingdom of God? How, you know, we see the two sides here, so how do I navigate knowing where, where I fit here? And part of the answer, part of the answer comes from the text itself. Um, with, a, with a little bit of Greek grammar under your belt, uh, you would find that this text uses what's called a present participle. And all of the commentators on this passage that I read emphasize the importance of the fact that um, this, this text uses a present participle, which is always meant to uh, talk about habitual, ongoing practice. This is what characterizes you in an ongoing, habitual sense. And so certainly, to some extent, as, as these char- commentators universally clarify, this, these verses, when it talks about those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This text is not talking about an occasional battle with anger, envy, or lust, but with a life that habitually displays and overflows with it. I think that's a helpful comment. Well, I think that's a helpful comment. I still don't think it solves things completely. Because then we start to get, you know, my mind again, we can sort of start step into the, the hair splitting. Okay, well, I envied three times last week. So is that habitual or is that the occasional battle? And, you know, and we start to, okay, okay, you know, where, where do I fit in here again? And that's the way our mind works. Where's the line? If I struggled this much, am I past the line or not past the line? And we all, we all, we all can go through that. But brothers and sisters, if that's where we are, I want to encourage you that if, if you're asking the questions, well, did I, did I struggle with envy too much or not enough? Did, was my struggle with envy in the habitual category or the not casual? Did I do it too much? Brothers and sisters, you're under the law again. You're thinking like someone under the law. You're thinking like someone who says, did I do enough or did I do bad enough? Or, or did I perform well enough or not well enough in order to get into the kingdom of heaven? That is not the way that we think when we are in Christ. If we're sure that God will forgive us because we're trying or we're sure we didn't do enough uh, bad stuff or we're sure that others are worse than us so God won't condemn us, these are all the kinds of things that we think when we're under the law. But if, on the other hand, we see, as we know we will, evidence of these desires popping up in our lives and we know the guilt that they deserve and we know that our only hope is in Jesus Christ, a Savior who bled and died in our place, and we run to Him. We run to Him because He's our only hope. He's the only one who can take, may be a substitute here. He's the only one who can save a person who has the flesh battling against Him. If we look at our lives and we cry out, Save me, Jesus, or I die, that is a response that is running to the gospel. 
That is, that is way of life number two that rests in the finished work of Christ, not way of life number one that parses out where we are and how far our works fit or not. That is the response that unites us to Christ, crucifies the desires of the flesh, gives the Spirit of God to lead us so that the Spirit of God gives us the strength to gradually see the fruit of the Spirit born, being born out in our lives. You know, here's, here's the irony of the situation when we come to verses 19 and 21. Verses 19 and 21 are about sin. But verses about sin can be the most glorious verses in Scripture if they will point us back to Savior. The irony is that the more seriously we take the consequences of doing what we want instead of what God wants, the more seriously we take the desires of the flesh at work in our lives, the more fully we understand the guilt that these works of the flesh indict against us, then the greater our vision of Jesus Christ will be. Then the greater will be our vision of a Savior who took this consequence, who took this guilt, who took the burden that we deserve on our behalf. And the greater will be the glory of our Savior. The greater will be the glory of the one who died to take this non-inheritance verdict that we should be standing under right now. When we view these verses about sin, we don't want to say, ah, it's just talking about habitual sin, and clearly I don't rise to that level. What we want to say is, I see those desires still battling in me, so Jesus, save me, or I die. And we run to a Savior. We run to a Savior who unites us to His Spirit, and in uniting us to His Spirit, He sets up what Dr. Light will talk about in two weeks. And that is a spirit who works more and more fruit in our lives. Not because we're working harder or doing better, but because that is the gift we receive when the Spirit of God is at work in us. All because of Christ. You know, isn't, isn't that the whole point of Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee parses out his life and says, Oh, God... I know what the works of sin look like, and so I'm really glad I'm not like that tax collector. I'm really glad I'm on this side of the works of good instead of evil. And Jesus says, O Pharisee, your heart is not in the right place. It is pouring out works of the flesh. And the tax collector looks at his life and says, I see works of the flesh. God have mercy on me. And Jesus says, it is that man who walks away justified. Because it's the one who sees his sin for what it is and runs to the Savior who is the only solution for sin. It is he who is united to the Spirit, which kicks us back to what Dr. Light said last week. How do we see victory over the works of the flesh? It is being led by the Spirit. It's walking with the Spirit that comes from being united to Christ. And I was thinking about two middle school basketball players. This is perhaps not a perfect analogy, but I think it points us in the right direction. These two middle school basketball players were both basketball players who had a lot of weaknesses and flaws. They were both basketball players that cost their team a lot uh, and made mistakes. One of them was certainly more talented than the other. As they were looking ahead to, to high school, one who was generally more talented... Um, figured that that he was pretty talented. 
and he would just kind of, you know, practice a bit more, and come high school, he would be just fine, uh, because clearly he was more talented than a number of other people around him. There's another middle school basketball player who looked at his play and said, the way I'm playing, I am not going to make the cut in high school basketball, and I'm not going to be able to just go shoot around in my driveway and get better to make the cut. And he went to a coach and said, coach, I need you to give me private lessons. I need you to give me tutoring and the help that I need because it's only if I get help from you that I'm going to start to see fruit that's going to give me success here. It's not a perfect analogy, but when we see our weaknesses, the response is not to work harder or try better. It's to go to the only one who can give us help. Go to the only one who will lead to fruit coming in our lives. Go to the only one who has any chance of giving us hope, and it's a perfect chance of giving us hope because it's a perfect Savior who died on our behalf. This brings us right back to the clear point of these verses. What are verses 19 through 21 telling us? They're telling us that a life spilling forth these works of the flesh and spilling forth the works of the flesh are evidence that one is not fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Not because we've got to be better, not because we've got to do better, but because a life that's spilling forth continually these works without any fruit is evidence of a life that does not have the Spirit of God in play. So what do we do? What's our response? Our response is when we see works of the flesh, run to Christ. Run to our Savior. Run to the one who unites us to his Spirit. Because it's his Spirit who will give us fruit. It's his Spirit who will work the change in our lives that we can't work. Now we come to the end of a a passage and we want to know, well, how do I apply this? What application do I take from this passage of Scripture? And I think not only do we get some specific application, but, but this helps us know how to apply a passage of Scripture like this in the first place. See, if we look at a list as a chart that will sort of tell us, do this and you'll inherit the kingdom of God, and don't do this and you won't inherit, we leave here tonight with a burden. We leave here with a burden of, boy, I better do that, or I better not do that. That's not the way we apply these verses to our lives. If we look at this list and say, boy, the works of the flesh are still evident in my heart and life. I must run to a glorious Savior. I must run to Christ. I must run to be with Him. He is my only hope. When we respond that way, we then will have the strength. We will then have the Spirit who brings change to guide us to live along the lines that these two lists describe for us. These lists are all about telling us who our Savior is. And so if we could say, well, how are we going to apply this passage tonight? I would tell you wherever you are, the application is the same. Paul's warning is this. If you realize that the litmus paper of your life shows these characteristics spilling out, that this is where you are, and that you have not taken seriously the warning of these characteristics, if, if your life is not wor- worthy of inheriting the kingdom of God, then the application to you is run to Christ. Run to Christ. He is waiting. He has died. He has shed His blood. He has offered a way of hope and salvation. And if you realize, if you realize that you love your Savior and you certainly see some fruit of the Spirit and yet, even while seeing some fruit of the Spirit, you know that there are some of these characteristics that are battling in your heart 
if you see some of these works of the flesh still raising and rearing their ugly heads in your life, then the application is the same. Run to Christ. Run to Christ. Because running to Christ gives us the forgiveness we need, but running to Christ is how we fix the problem. Not we, He. Run into Christ because it's His Spirit who works the change. Run to Christ because His Spirit is the one that leads us to not gratify the flesh. Run to Christ because He is the only one who can really change who we are and therefore how we live. How do we change the evidence? How do we change the litmus paper? Not by working, not by trying, not by being better, but by running to Christ. Being with Christ and letting His Spirit then make that change that only His Spirit can bring. So the application for us is the same. When we come to this list of sin, we say, God, be merciful to us. Oh, deliver us by your mercy, oh God, through Jesus, who's paid it all for us. Let's pray together. God, your word delivers a dire warning to us, and the dire warning is, There are works of the flesh that are not worthy of inheriting the kingdom of God. So I pray that your spirit would convict our hearts, convict us of where the works of the flesh are rearing their ugly heads. And if if we've been complacent and and allowed these things to continue, if we have not taken seriously the warning of these verses, I pray that even perhaps for the first time we would run to Christ, our only hope. And if we are, if we are, battle-weary, if we are those who have run to you so many times and yet need to run to you so many more, if we are those who still see the battle of the desires of the flesh trying to undermine and work against and fight down and battle down the desires of the Spirit, then, oh, draw us to yourself. Draw us nearer to you. Bring us near to our Savior and fill us with your Spirit who alone can change our hearts and change the fruit that comes from them. Draw us to yourself, Lord. May our response this week be to run to you. We pray this through Christ, our perfect Savior. Amen.